0: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Former President Donald Trump faces his second impeachment trial next week on accusations that he incited a harrowing siege at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th when his supporters overran the police and violently stormed the building. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. What do the legal briefs tell you about the strategies at trial?
1: So the, the legal briefs are really revealing. First of all, from the point of view of the so-called prosecution here, the House impeachment managers, they are taking a very aggressive, I think appropriately aggressive, tack. They are not tiptoeing around the margins of the First Amendment or the constitutionality issues. They are just coming straight out and saying, This is utterly unacceptable. This is the core of what impeachment is about. This was an attempted insurrection. This was a violation by the president on another branch of our government, and they are coming out swinging. The defense brief, when we finally saw it, was a different type of creature It was candidly shoddy work product. It was poorly written, poorly reasoned. It was a mess. It was hard to follow. They seem to use this strange format that lawyers sometimes use when they're responding to interrogatories in a civil case—very formalistic. And we hereby admit that the Constitution exists, but we deny everything else that you say. But the gist of the arguments are this sort of mishmash of the constitutional defense that it's unconstitutional to try a former official, which I think is not a strong argument. It's an argument. We don't know the answer, but I think the better weight of the evidence and law is on the other side. They argue First Amendment protections, which I think is misguided in several respects. And notably, they don't take the big lie off the table. They mince words a bit about this false idea of election fraud, but they say something to the effect of, well, there's not enough evidence either way. Who can tell? And we deny that Donald Trump lied when he put forth the election fraud theory. I think that's potentially very fraught for the lawyers and for Donald Trump's defense.
0: How much does the case depend on the House managers being able to prove that his speech on February 6th incited the violence that followed?
1: So that is a key component of the case that they'll be making. I do think it's important to note that the House impeachment managers have intentionally framed their argument as not just January 6th, but everything that led up to it. They cast this, I think, smartly, as a longer-term, ongoing, sort of prolonged, coordinated effort by Donald Trump and those around him. They don't name names, but Rudy Giuliani and Mo Brooks and Donald Trump Jr. and Sidney Powell and others to spread and sort of amplify and activate this election fraud lie. And I think what they point to is January 6th as sort of the tipping point. And look, Donald Trump's words that day are very important. And you do want to be able to show as much of a connection as you can between his words to that crowd and their actions. And I think that'll lie in his actual words to the crowd. The crowd's actual reactions, there are more and more videos now of that coming out of the crowd saying, yeah, what he said, storm the Capitol, storm the Capitol. Just Security just published some of these videos the other day. And Donald Trump's reaction afterwards when he was generally positive and praised the crowd who had just ransacked the Capitol. I think that's the heart of the case.
0: Is the strongest argument the defense makes, the process argument, because that would allow the Republicans who don't want to impeach Donald Trump to say it wasn't based on what happened, it wasn't based on what he did, we just can't impeach a president who's no longer in office.
1: Exactly, yes. I think it's not necessarily the strongest on the merits, but it's politically the most expedient for exactly those reasons. Look, it's going to be hard for any Republican who votes not guilty, even if they're from a safe red state seat, they're going to have to go back, and and some significant percentage of their constituency is going to say, how could you be okay with what happened on January 6th? That off-ramp of the constitutional procedural question will enable those senators to say, No, no, no. I I was not okay with that. However, I believe that it's unconstitutional to try a former official. I I really doubt many of them actually believe that, by the way. I mean, how could it be that a president could do anything he wants in those last few days or weeks and and have zero consequence? I, I suspect if the party affiliations were flipped here, as often happens in impeachment, then the positions of not just the Republicans but potentially Democrats as well would be flipped as well.
0: A lot of legal experts look at one thing the defense did and say this is a bad move, and that is that Trump denies the allegation that his claims that he won the election were false. So they don't make an outright argument that the election was stolen, but that inference is there. If this were a real criminal trial, that might distract a jury, but is it going to have any effect on these senators?
1: You're exactly right that in a real trial, a criminal trial, that defense would be irrelevant. It doesn't matter if the election was stolen or not. It was not. But even if it was, it does not permit you to go incite a riot or engage in other criminality. So it would probably, I believe, be excluded. I think a judge would keep it out of a criminal trial. I also don't think it's going to help in terms of persuading or allowing senators the political cover to vote not guilty. I suspect the reason those lawyers kept it in there is – sort of as a concession to their very difficult client, Donald Trump. I mean, the reporting is the reason Trump's first legal team all resigned, several of whom, by the way, were DOJ, Department of Justice alums, one of whom was an ethics expert, is because they refused to make that argument or even to hedge it the way his new lawyers did. And so I think his new lawyers came in and they tried to be lawyerly about it and have a lot of double and triple negatives and said, you can't not disprove this. Therefore, we deny it. But I think it's an irresponsible argument to make. And I think it will hurt Donald Trump's cause if they make it really on the floor of the Senate.
0: What's your take on the First Amendment argument? Is it persuasive at all?
1: I think it's misplaced. Again, it may sound good. It may give some political cover to some of the senators who intend to vote not guilty. But the first thing that's so important to understand, the First Amendment can be a defense in a criminal case, but we're not in the criminal world here. This is impeachment. And John Berman, who's a CNN anchor, I think made the exact right point this morning. I have to give him credit because I'm going to steal it verbatim. He said, if a president stood up and said, I hereby espouse the Nazi Party. I am a member of the Nazi Party, and I believe in all of their beliefs and thought systems. Well, guess what? Not a crime to do that, protected by the First Amendment as well. However, impeachable, You bet. It would have to be impeachable. So the First Amendment is not really applicable to impeachment, if you think about it that way. There could be statements that are First Amendment protected, that you could not be prosecuted for, but that are absolutely impeachable. Now, look, it gives them a framework, though, to wrap themselves in the Constitution. If this was a criminal case, they could absolutely defend him by saying this is First Amendment protected speech. And I think the better argument is that it's not. The First Amendment does not blanket protect all speech, you'll hear people out there saying, but Brandenburg, but Brandenburg, it's this old Supreme Court decision uh, from over 50 years ago. But that decision does not say you can say anything you want, and it's never a crime. That decision says you can say a lot, but you cannot directly intend or say something that has a natural effect of imminently causing violent or criminal action, and I think there's an argument that his speech here crossed that line.
0: You mentioned that this defense brief is not as well formed, and there are typos. People have made a lot of the fact that on the first page, United States Senate, there's a typo there, which it's hard to understand in these days of autocorrect, but does that indicate anything about the trial team itself, or does that just indicate that they had to put this together pretty fast?
1: I I do think it says something about the child team. I I will make a little bit of an excuse for them. The funny thing is the the scariest typos are the ones that autocorrect would not catch. And what they did was instead of United States, they were Unites States, U-N-I-T-E-S. But Spellcheck would not catch that because Unites is a word. So we don't worry about that. Right. But no, look, I think it was a sloppy enough product. And I think it was a product that showed so little thought and consistency that it – look – I've seen worse. I'm not going to say it's it's the worst filing I've ever seen, but it's shoddy, and it's not at the level that a true top-shelf attorney, even with just 48 hours, you would put something together even if you wanted your brief to be very brief, very concise, very summary in nature – I think you would still do it in a way that was more convincing, more coherent, and better structure. Their structure is bizarre. They break out these different number of accusations that are tied to nothing in the articles of impeachment, and then they sort of very formalistically, we, we hereby and, and whereunto deny and admit this. It, it's a confusing, messy document, and, and it doesn't bode well for how straightforward and digestible their presentations will be next week. We understand
0: that the House managers have compiled footage of what happened, his speech, the reactions in the crowd, as you mentioned, that compilation that was put together by Just Security. Do you think that that is really effective in this kind of a setting?
1: not only do I think it's effective, I think it's the most effective thing they can do. I mean, look, their task, the House impeachment managers, is going to be to, to remind people and to, to really hit them in the gut, as we would say, to appeal viscerally to just how bad, scary, and dangerous this was. And the reality is, I think we're all experiencing human memory is remarkably short. Here we are three and change weeks out from the event, and it's already receding a little bit in terms of just how immediate and dangerous it felt. And to me, it's much more resonant to show a video of what was happening inside the Capitol than to have some member of Congress stand at a lectern make an impassioned 20-minute speech. Uh, Show me a two-minute video any day over that. And I think they need to really make their case hit quickly and hit hard. And I think those videos are the best way to do that.
0: The last trial, we had the Republicans in charge of the Senate. This trial, the Democrats are in charge. So they're going to be able to decide what the trial is going to be like. Do you think that they should call witnesses?
1: Yeah, that's that's an important difference between last year and this year. The trick with calling witnesses is is keeping it from spiraling into a never-ending proceeding. I mean, there's dozens, hundreds of people who witnessed what happened in the Capitol. If you are going to call witnesses, I think you probably should, but you need to be very careful and selective. There's also a risk of appearing emotionally exploitative, right? I mean, look, you want to drive home the horrors of what happened. You want to focus attention on Officer Brian Sicknick, who was murdered inside that building. But there also is a way to overdo it and look like you're being not fully respectful to the people who suffered. Um, so, for example, if they call his grieving family members, I don't know. I, that may be a little bit much. But I, I think you want to call some basic witnesses to, to explain what happened on that day, perhaps some congressional staffers who can really bring it to light. Um, I think you should. they should consider calling people who can testify about Donald Trump's state of mind that day, people who were with or speaking with or privy to how he was reacting to – what was going on. So I think the trick is, is sort of calibrating your case and calling a handful of witnesses, but not turning it into a saga. I mean, in the Bill Clinton case, the negotiated agreement was they called three, I think, three or four witnesses total. So, you know, maybe a few more than that, but you don't want to get into dozens of witnesses here.
0: What about one of the rioters? There's been a lot of press that Jacob Chesney, you know, the so-called QAnon shaman, is willing to testify
1: I would not do that at all if I was in charge of putting this case on. First of all, if you call a witness, you sort of own that person, and that becomes your witness, like it or not. Second of all, it would become a circus to call some of these folks. Third, you have what you need from them. You can do that without calling them into the well of the Senate by playing the many videos that are out there of people saying, fight for Trump, or by even using the statements that their lawyers have made or the legal filings that that their lawyers have put in, saying my client did this because he or she believed Donald Trump asked him to or or called on him to do it. That's good enough. That makes the point, and that keeps it from becoming a circus.
0: Now, one of the defense attorneys has said that at least some of the supporters planned their attack in advance if they can prove that, does that help their case
1: I don't see how it does because the argument is not that Donald Trump just just you know dropped in out of nowhere on January 6th. Um, the argument that the impeachment managers are making is this was several weeks in the making and so if there's evidence that some of these um, people who rioted were planning in late December or mid-December or January 3rd, you go, of course they were, because this is what Donald Trump and his people were working on inciting for weeks. And by the way, even if there was pre-planning that had nothing to do with Donald Trump, you're still not allowed to go in and sort of set off that powder, powder keg. So I don't see that being a- a- as quite as persuasive a point as I think some of these uh, defenders of Donald Trump and, um, and others seem to think.
0: So now it seems almost a foregone conclusion that they will not be able to get the number of Republican senators they need to convict. But what would you say is the best move they could make to convince some of those reluctant senators to convict?
1: Yeah, I still think it's, more possible than many think that, that they do get 17 Republicans to join with all 50 Democrats and convict. I think enough of them, even those who voted, the 45 who voted last week on Senator Rand Paul's motion, several of them have come forward publicly and made clear they said, My vote there was to hear the constitutional issue and debate it. But that does not mean I'm, I'm committed to vote one way or another on the ultimate guilt or non-guilt of Donald Trump. John Thune said that, Rob Portman said that, and I think others are in the same same point of view. I think the best thing that the impeachment managers can do is appeal not even directly to the senators, but to the American public. Because do I think there are senators on the fence who can be persuaded by just the force of the evidence in the chamber? I don't know, maybe maybe a few, maybe only at the margins. But if those senators start hearing receiving lots of emails or tweets from their constituents or start seeing public opinion polling showing that X percentage of their constituents are in favor of of a conviction, that I think can move the needle um, on the most number of Republican or Democratic senators. So if I'm the impeachment managers, I'm trying to really aim my – case at the American public and, and like I said before, to to hit him in the gut and to be really visceral in the way I do this.
0: Thanks, Ellie. That's former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. A case involving Donald Trump's use of his personal Twitter account for official business is now pending before the Supreme Court. It revolves around a ruling from the Second Circuit Court of Appeals that found Trump's use of the at-real Donald Trump platform for official business created a public forum entitled to First Amendment protection and that Trump violated the Constitution when he blocked followers who were critical of him. The Justice Department and the Twitter users who sued the president agree the case is now moot, since Trump is out of office and has been banned from social media platforms. But how to get rid of it? The case presents the justices with a doctrinal puzzle. Joining me is Robin Efren, a professor at Brooklyn Law School. So start by just telling us briefly about the ruling By the Second Circuit. So
2: the Second Circuit had to rule on this issue of whether or not Trump, when he was tweeting in his capacity as president, was allowed to block people on Twitter, right, the way that you can block people if you're just an ordinary Twitter user and you want to block people from your account. there was a question of whether or not Trump, who was using his Twitter account, you know, at real Donald Trump as president, whether he could block people. And the Second Circuit said, no, he couldn't, that the, you know, Twitter was essentially a public forum in that capacity. And so there were First Amendment implications in Trump blocking people from Twitter when he was tweeting under that account. So that was the Second Circuit ruling. um, And of course, things change very quickly, um, both with regard to Donald Trump and Twitter, and then, of course, Donald Trump and his position as president of the United States.
0: So an average person would say, okay, this isn't a controversy anymore, you know, just dismiss it. What's the problem?
2: Well, the problem is that you know, the courts are there serving two purposes. So one, and this is the primary purpose of the courts, and one that the courts take quite seriously under the Constitution, that is their role in resolving live controversy. So if there is an actual dispute between parties, courts are there to resolve that. They're there to give an answer, right? Who is right? Who is wrong? Who is liable? Who is responsible? And then, you know, as part of that, courts are there to make sure that the party who is not at fault gets a remedy. So the remedies that parties ask for are usually money, which is damages, or an equitable remedy. So an equitable remedy would be something like an injunction in which a court tells a party, no, you can't do that anymore, right? So here it would be, say, no, Donald Trump as president, you can't block people on Twitter anymore. So that's one role of the court, is that they're there to to resolve live controversies. You know, the other role of the court, which is sort of secondary to that, is that they are there to make pronouncements on the law, right? So when it comes to things like common law or interpretation of the Constitution or a statute, courts are there not just to sort of issue a decision and say what the remedy is. But there's a reason that they write opinions, because those opinions are then going to form the basis of the law going forward. And so one of the things that we rely on courts to do is to provide reasoning for their decision so that the decision itself and the reasoning will form the basis for what other courts do going forward. So the Second Circuit is an appellate court. It's the federal court that hears appeals that come out of the federal courts in New York, Connecticut, and Vermont. And so anything that the second circuit says is going to be binding on federal courts hearing decisions in federal uh, district courts coming out of those states, and it's also going to be considered persuasive authority to other courts, right? So to state courts that might be hearing these questions or to other federal courts. And as it turns out, you know, all the federal courts of so appeals are equal, they're all very important. But there are some circuits that are considered particularly influential. So the Second Circuit is one of them. You know, an opinion coming out of the Second Circuit is going to carry a lot of weight. So one of the things that's going on here is that when a court is issuing an opinion, It is resolving a live controversy, but it's also laying the groundwork for what is going to go forward. It is not binding on the whole country. Other courts that are outside of that jurisdiction are free to come to their own conclusions. But every time you have a federal court of appeals issuing a decision and giving its reasoning, that really sets a path for how other courts are going to look at things and act upon things. And certainly it's going to be binding precedent For everything within that court's jurisdiction until another court comes along and comes to a different decision.
0: So then, why not just leave the Second Circuit's decision as is because you don't know how the Supreme Court would have ruled on the issue and pretend that there was no appeal?
2: You know, I think that is important to keep in mind is that even if we wipe away sort of all of the controversy around this particular case and how politically heated it is, the U.S. Supreme Court is a court of very limited jurisdiction. Right, and They hear very few cases per year. So for most cases in the United States, they end well before the Supreme Court, right? So we can think even of state courts where the state Supreme Court is the highest authority in that state. A lot of those decisions of state law couldn't even go to the U.S. Supreme Court if people wanted them to. Now, in federal courts, even though someone who has an adverse ruling in a court of appeals, meaning, you know, they lost, that they can petition the Supreme Court to hear their case that the vast majority of these cases are not heard by the Supreme Court. So for most litigants, their path ends in a court of appeals. And so that's the ordinary state of affairs, right, is that people, you know, either just sort of accept the decision of the circuit court, and then that's the end. That becomes the binding judgment for those parties, and it becomes binding precedent within that circuit, or they try to go up to the Supreme Court and you know they, they aren't picked and the judgment below just stands. The problem comes up when the Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case, but then maybe that case becomes moot. It's not a live controversy anymore. So that's when we're in this sort of what if territory, right? Maybe we wouldn't have just let that second circuit opinion be. Um, but the Supreme Court might have decided something else. And so in that case, that's where we get this Munsingware doctrine that comes in, which is to say, okay, the Supreme Court is not in a position to actually rule on this particular issue because of mootness, right? There's no longer a live controversy. And so the Supreme Court, as a matter of mootness and, you know, sort of part of this larger standing doctrine, they're not going to weigh in on this issue. But then the question is, if they're not going to weigh in on this issue, do you just sort of pretend like this never happened and it was never appealed to the Supreme Court in the first place and that lower court doctrine would just stand? Or does the Supreme Court say, you know what, we're going to wipe the slate clean. We're going to pretend like the Second Circuit never happened either. It's no longer um, a live controversy. And if this comes up again, We'll just start all over again, right? New litigants will get a clean slate. They'll start off in the trial court, and they will keep litigating from there.
0: So how does the Supreme Court decide what to do?
2: So the ordinary course of affairs would be that the Supreme Court just leaves things be, right? That what happened below stays. Now, in some cases, the Supreme Court, without making its own decision, will vacate the judgment below, right? That's that idea of wiping the slate clean. And so in other contexts, one reason that they might do that is that a lot of times, for example, the Supreme Court will come out with a big ruling that has a change in law or a change in the direction in law. And so there are lots of follow-on cases that the Supreme Court itself doesn't need to sort of hear anew every single time. And so what the Supreme Court will do is they'll just vacate the lower court judgment, case those back to the lower courts, and then the lower courts sort of proceed with the new Supreme Court doctrine in mind. Now here, that's not what's going on. This is a little bit different. And so the parties are asking the Supreme Court to wipe the slate clean for a different reason, right? Not because there's been a change in the law, but because there is this question of the Supreme Court might have made a change in the law, but they didn't quite ever get to making the decision because of mootness. So since vacator itself is a remedy, right, it's the Supreme Court is making an active decision to do something, right? to grant somebody the remedy of vacating that lower court judgment. The Supreme Court is going to need a reason to do that, right? They need to have a good reason not to just leave things be because, like I was saying before, the ordinary course of affairs is that cases are just done after the circuit court. So what the Supreme Court has said is that if somebody is going to ask for vacator, right, if they are asking to um, sort of wipe the slate clean, then they need to show that they weren't responsible for the case being moot. In other words, if the whole reason that the Supreme Court no longer has the ability to issue a ruling in this case and decide on law, then you want to make sure that the person who's getting the benefit of that vacator didn't sort of cause that mootness to begin with, right? And you can see how that would be a little bit inequitable, right? You ask the Supreme Court to intervene, then you yourself create the reason for the Supreme Court not to be able to make a decision. And then nonetheless, you're asking for the benefit of vacating that lower court judgment, which was adverse against you. So that's this doctrine that the Supreme Court isn't going to vacate that lower court judgment because of mootness. If the party who's asking for it caused the mootness. But then that's how we get to these other problems, which is the question of, well, what does it mean to have caused the mootness, right? How do we know that the party who's asking for this remedy is, in fact, responsible for the case being moved?
0: So in this case, the election really is causing the mootness and also the fact that Twitter has closed Donald Trump's account. So who's causing the mootness here?
2: Yeah, this is super interesting to me, um, and I think it really is important to separate those arguments because there really are sort of two separate things going on that did not necessarily have to be connected at all that are causing the mootness, right? So the whole problem was could Donald Trump in his, you know, at real Donald Trump account block Twitter users? So two things had to be true in order for this to be a large controversy. One is that Donald Trump still needs to be on Twitter. The second is that he still needs to be president, right, because that's the allegation of what was causing the problem, and that's what the Second Circuit ruled on. They ruled on Twitter specifically and Donald Trump being president specifically. And in a very short period of time, both of those things changed. So let's take the Twitter part first. So on the Twitter front, he engaged in lots of twitter activity that was wrapped up in rhetoric that people have alleged was you know really um, raising the temperature in the country uh, leading to the insurrection on january 6th and just sort of generally making the peaceful transition of power quite difficult after the election right so you know, from Twitter's point of view, he is just a user and Twitter is a private company and they have terms of service and, you know, their terms of service contain all sorts of reasons why they might block or suspend uh, uh, your usage of the service through their account and things like uh, sort of being mean to people, spreading misinformation, right? All of these things, right, depending on how you're going to interpret Twitter's terms of service violate that, right? And at the end of the day, we're not really arguing here about Twitter's terms of service. Um, You know, somebody might argue about that somewhere else, but the bottom line is Twitter decided that he was uh, sort of causing such significant problems that they were going to suspend his account indefinitely. And so what that means is, you know, rightly or wrongly from that sort of tech and contract point of view, Donald Trump is no longer on Twitter, right? He can't tweet as himself. He can't tweet as himself as the president. It's just gone. That account is no longer functional. And so that means that the question of whether he can block users is moot, right? If he himself is not on Twitter tweeting, then he can't block people because he's not there. So that is one argument about mootness. And so, you know, the question about whether he caused that is an interesting one. I mean, then that's where maybe we do have to get a little bit more into those questions about, you know, was Twitter correct in blocking him or suspending him, right? If he was violating their terms of service very quick and very clearly, then one might say he is responsible, right? He should know how to use Twitter within its rules in terms of service. He didn't do that. And so they blocked him. And therefore, the fact that he's no longer on Twitter is his fault. You know, other people might argue differently that Twitter is um, sort of very capricious in how they apply that. You know, they block some people, they don't suspend other people. You know, that is what it is. But I think that that is possibly the stronger argument for him. Sort of causing his own mootness, right? He is responsible for the fact that he's no longer on Twitter. Now, the fact that he's no longer president, I think is a really tough argument from a public policy point of view. So, you know, if you read the filings that the parties have made in this case, the Twitter users are basically saying, you know, it's ridiculous to say that he's not responsible for no longer being president because he ran for re-election. He, you know, conducted himself during that campaign. He made his arguments to the American people about whether he should be reelected, and he lost, right? He was not successful in that attempt, and so he is responsible for losing the election. You know, that one, I think, is a much harder argument to make, and, you know, I will just opine, this is purely my own opinion. And I think a little bit aside from the core legal arguments, I worry a little bit about what this means for our understanding of peaceful transitions of power if it's found that by no longer being president, he caused the mootness in this case. Right. I think that, you know, I personally would want legal doctrines that don't incentivize people to hang on to power simply so that they could be said to have not caused the situation in which he was no longer president. I mean, given what we've been through, one frame of mind that somebody might be in is, oh, I'm responsible for making sure that I still occupy the office of president of the United States. And I think, you know, in our country in which we say that we're a nation of Laws and not of people, etc. I think it's good to sort of depersonalize these sorts of things and say Donald Trump is no longer president because we held a free and fair election. That election was going to happen on November 3rd, regardless of what Donald Trump did, that it was going to be certified by Congress on January 6th, you know, because of. How the states acted, regardless of what Donald Trump did, and that we were going to have a peaceful transition of power on January 20th, regardless of what Donald Trump did, right? If he had won the election, it would be the same thing, right? He would continue to be president because of the operation of free and fair elections, not because he has some sort of powerful, causative force in hanging on. So I personally see, um, you know, a a little bit of a politically difficult argument in saying that he caused the mootness by himself no longer being president. I do think, though, there is a stronger argument um, on the Twitter side, right, that the fact that
0: he was no longer able to tweet in that period um, is a little bit different. So then you think that the Supreme Court will allow the 2nd serve decision to remain won't vacate it.
2: Uh, you know, it, it's hard to say, um, you know, sort of pulling back a little bit and looking at this in the context of some of the other cases where this issue has come up. The typical scenario in which the court is talking about a party causing mootness is when a case settles. So, in other words, the reason that there's no longer a live controversy is that the parties have decided that the controversy itself as between them should come to an end. So that's not quite what's happening here. I don't think it's out of the question for the Supreme Court to look at this situation and come up with some sort of justification in which it, it says, you know, this is a, a controversy that is important enough that you know, regardless of some technical issues about who caused mootness or not, that, you know, and then from there, I think they can actually go in either direction, right? I mean, they could say, this is important enough that we want this decided fresh and anew from the beginning, right? If it's now going to be a different public figure who is blocking people on Twitter, right, that that government official should have their own case adjudicated without, the precedents of these be other cases in the way, uh, or they could go the other direction and say, this is an important enough issue that even though it's not a live controversy for us to decide that the second circuit did have a live controversy before them, right? That there's no reason to vacate that decision, right? It's not going to uh, really sort of affect Donald Trump in that way. He's no longer president, and he's no longer on Twitter. And so, you know, it's perfectly acceptable to just duck this case as the Supreme Court, because it's not live, but let the lower uh, court stand. So I think that this is, you know, a different enough sui generous situation from settlement uh, or some of the other things that the Supreme Court could uh, could go either way on that one.
0: So end. finally, there are upcoming cases Joe Biden has asked the Supreme Court to cancel the upcoming arguments in the case challenging Trump's border wall funding and the Remain in Mexico policy, and the Supreme Court agreed to cancel those arguments. Will this kind of a question come up in those cases as well? Um,
2: Not quite. I mean, it could, right? It could if the case itself becomes moot, but these arguments are a different issue, which is what happens when the government's position itself changes. Um, and this isn't new. This does happen um, when there is a change in administration. It happens at the lower court level, too. It doesn't just re- um, you know require a change at the national level. So, uh, for example, there were questions when Donald Trump became president about whether or not the federal government and the Department of Justice would continue to defend the Affordable Care Act in court. So that's going to be a little bit of a different position because the, you know, the question is whether or not the government's policy is still the same. And there the issue is going to be whether there's been an actually different change in policy, right? So whether there is, you know, an a new order or a new policy about say border wall funding or if it's just a question of the government not continuing to defend something um and you know not to get too far down that road because it's a little bit further from what we're talking about but the interesting thing about that latter view which is if something is in the works but the federal government's position changes and they're just no longer defending something is that there are often other actors who are still interested in defending that policy, and as long as a policy or a regulation is live and causes a controversy, the fact that the federal government is no longer defending it isn't necessarily dispositive, because you can have other parties who have an interest, right, a constitutionally cognizable interest, who are either already parties in the in the case or might try to step in as interveners and continue defending that policy, even if the federal government isn't uh, still defending that policy. So that's a little bit different because it it depends on whether the policy itself or the regulation itself has changed. And that's going to tell you whether or not the issue is moot or whether you just have this sub issue of what it means for the federal government no longer to keep supporting a policy, but that policy is still there.
0: Thanks, Robin. That's Robin Efford, a professor at Brooklyn Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.